Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times. With episode 265 of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, getting over is back once again and it's Thursday, so you know what that means. We are here to talk about everything that went down this week across AEW and NXT. We have... As always, a loaded show for you, especially from an AEW standpoint. Plenty happened Wednesday night on Dynamite. In particular, you guys know I'm not a huge fan of Rampage on Fridays. Nevertheless, we have plenty to talk about on today's show, and I do not want to waste much time getting to it. So allow me to remind you what I remind you about every time I remind you about things to open up the Getting Over Wrestling podcast. And that is that this show in particular... So do not forget to head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify, leave a five-star rating on Apple, add a review, let people know how much you love this show. We will read those five-star reviews if you leave them on Apple Podcasts here on the show. But those five-star ratings, super, super important. Boosts us up the, the rankings, the charts on both systems. It's where we get the vast majority of our listeners. I know many of you listen through other platforms, other apps. Uh, but those two are our number one and two, respectively. And, you know, the more five-star ratings, the higher up we're ranked, the more people listen, the higher up we get ranked even more. And hopefully the show absolutely blows up. But it's been a great uh, couple of years. And your five-star ratings and reviews, those of you who have left them already, are greatly appreciated. Also, please do not forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. You can see now that football season is almost over, the Silver King's life has opened up a little bit. I've been able to start tweeting again live during the shows, which is a lot of fun. Sometimes it's a little bit complainy, I understand. Uh, but, you know, look, you got, got to put on a good television product or I'm going to criticize it. And that goes for any brand, doesn't matter if it's WWE uh, or AEW. So here we are uh, coming right off of Dynamite. A lot of things happened on Wednesday night, but we also have a lot of stuff going on here in the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast Universe. So quickly, just before we get to today's show, a reminder of what's to come. Next Tuesday, we will have for you the WWE Elimination Chamber Ultimate Preview. On Thursday, we will talk all things AEW and NXT once again. On that show, we will have NXT Vengeance Day Analysis, obviously a very special NXT event going down on Tuesday. And then on Saturday will be our WWE Elimination Chamber instant analysis, except it's not going to be, you know, midnight or maybe 1 a.m. the following day. It's going to be like right in the middle of the afternoon because, of course, Elimination Chamber, unfortunately, is taking place in Saudi Arabia. So I'm not sure yet if we're going to do a live show on Twitter Spaces or not as a little preview. You guys kind of let us know maybe if you're still into that Saturday early afternoon before the WWE kickoff show. You guys want us to do 30 minutes, but it is the road to WrestleMania 38. Feels like we should probably do it. So Let's pencil it in right now, Saturday afternoon. I'll have to look at the exact time, but uh, 90 minutes before the start of Elimination Chamber. Let's plan on doing a live pre-show on Twitter Spaces. The way you can listen to that, the way you can follow our tweets is by finding us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. We tweet clips, news, and live stuff during the TV shows. We also provide pre- and post-show polls, so you guys get to let us know what you think before and after major pay-per-views that contributes to, of course, the discourse on this program, as do your DMs and tweets, which we read on the air to answer questions and 
converse over your comments. So please do not forget to do all of that by following us on Twitter and talking to us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. As far as those of you who have recently written in to ask how I'm feeling, first of all, I appreciate that. Doing much better. This is probably the best I've felt in the last two weeks. I'd call myself 97%. Uh, Still don't feel 100% better, but almost there. Uh, COVID's a bitch. Wear a mask, get your vaccines. That's all I'll say about it on today's show. Let's move on and talk professional wrestling. As always, folks, a reminder for this show in particular, but on every episode of Getting Over, we put timestamps in the episode descriptions. So if you're only an NXT viewer, you only watch AEW, hit the episode description and you can just kind of fast forward to the spot that you want to listen to. But as always, I really hope you listen to the whole show because whether you watch one, don't watch the other, whatever, we do it pretty quickly on this episode. And it's really good to know what else is going on in the wrestling universe. So even if you don't watch 2.0 NXT, you should at least figure out what the hell is happening on the show. Maybe it gets you to tune in. If you don't like AEW normally, hey, maybe there's a surprise person who joins the the brand where all of a sudden, oh, maybe I want to give AEW another shot. So as always, please listen to the whole episode. Uh, Before I get into the full breakdown of AEW Dynamite and Rampage, which is going to kick off the show, I just wanted to give a shout out to Wednesday Night Show because for me as a viewer, easily the best episode of AEW Dynamite in months. I mean, definitely the best of 2022, but I don't know how far back I would have to go to find a truly better episode of Dynamite from start to finish. When Tony Khan makes a concerted effort to put on a special show, more often than not, he really delivers. There's been some times he hasn't, where it's been disappointing and I've called him out for it. But he often at least tries or in his mind believes he's going to deliver on something. He did that in this case on Wednesday. It's not lost on me, by the way, that during a week where he knew Raw would be on sci-fi and he knew he's probably going to win the demo because of that, he's also trying to win total viewers. So he did whatever he could to make this as exciting of a build to the show as possible. And then when you tuned into the program, it was also not lost on me that Dynamite was heavily front-loaded with a ton of former big-name WWE talent. You had CM Punk, Andrade, El Idolo, Chris Jericho, Jake Hager, FTR, John Moxley, all in the first hour or so, not to mention the surprise that we're going to discuss in a minute. So it was very smart promotion of the episode. I felt the episode delivered on the promotion. Uh, Was it exactly the way Tony Khan promoted it? Well, look, I think it's pretty obvious when he first sent that tweet on Friday night, and I'm not going to read into it and and read you exactly what he said, but he said something along the lines of, there's going to be a forbidden door person coming in who's going to shake up the wrestling world and slam the door shut on their promotion, which to me was promising that someone contracted to another company or nearing the end of a contract with another company was going to step foot in AEW and, you know, almost pull like an Alundra Blaze, like, like, you know, a Medusa, throw the belt in the trash, say, screw you to that company and and become an AEW wrestler, say that they're all elite, right? And that's not what happened. Um, It was instead a free agent signing, plus someone coming in through the forbidden door, someone contracted to another company wrestling for AEW. So he kind of got over his bridges a little bit. Like he he promised the sky and he delivered the clouds and the clouds are a big part of the sky. So he pretty much was there. He just didn't give you the entire thing. As a viewer, I was okay with it because 
I had a feeling from the moment he made that tweet that he was conflating a couple things. I mean, look, Tony late at night, he gets onto some of these Twitter rants that really they should take his Twitter away. Like, like on his phone, he should have an app that shuts down Twitter at 10 p.m. Eastern every single night where he is not allowed to tweet after 10 p.m. So it felt like he was conflating two things. I don't know if he was out drinking, having fun, feeling himself, whatever the case. Um, you know, the guy certainly has an ego. We all have egos, but he certainly has one that is getting more elevated by the day, at least in the professional wrestling world. Uh, so he kind of went off and was promising all this type of stuff. Did he deliver on that original tweet? No. But once they got past that tweet and the promotion changed, they actually started talking about it in the media. It became pretty obvious it was going to be a free agent signing and there might be a second surprise that was someone coming through a forbidden door. And once those expectations were reset, now I feel based on what we got on Wednesday night, Tony Khan completely delivered on it. And anyone who is upset um, in terms of the surprises not living up to expectation I just don't, I'm not in the boat with you on that. I don't know how you could feel that way. So let's get to actually talking what happened in AEW this week. Um, it's always difficult with AEW because we have Rampage on Friday at 10 p.m. And then Dynamite, you know, four days later on Wednesday, sorry, five days later on Wednesday. And we talk about it all in one episode and you have to tie storylines together. And especially this particular week, you know, normally we'd open up with an AEW World Championship match. It'd be the first thing we talk about. But there is a surprise to talk about. There's a challenger for the AEW World Championship to discuss. Um, and there's a ton of things happening right now because AEW is on its way building towards revolution, which to me looks like it's going to be an absolutely stacked card in the true definition of the word stacked. So the way I organized um, this breakdown of AEW, I mixed Dynamite and Revolution together as I always do, but I went with news. What's the biggest news? Um, and then how does that feed into other things that are happening within the program? And that's really the best way that I could come up with it. So we're going to kick this off talking AEW with the big surprise, the free agent signing that was promised and promoted by AEW. We had a face of the revolution uh, match for a, uh, an entry match for a spot into the tournament, which determines the number one contender for the TNT Championship. That match will happen at Revolution. We had Isaiah Cassidy in the match fighting. Like, it felt like his third match in as many weeks or his second singles match in five days and then he had a tag team match before where he was the loser. So I'm not a million percent sure what they're doing with Isaiah Cassidy, but Isaiah Cassidy was in the match and then they revealed the surprise, which I think we all pretty much knew who it was gonna be. At least the Silver King did, I tweeted it. Uh, Keith Lee. None other than Keith Lee. He got an incredible reception and he got a bask in his glory chant from the crowd. He waved them on like a conductor, just like he used to, both on the independents and in NXT. His gear was very similar to the WWE gear from a style standpoint, meaning the, the mostly black gear with the, the pink colors, the bright fluorescentness. But he was shirtless and he was wearing biker shorts again. So he looked just like he did in NXT, and in the independence where everyone fell in love with him. Lee dig, did his signature pounce early in the match. He did a leapfrog, a pendulum splash over the ropes. Cassidy eventually hit a corkscrew tope and Lee won with the big bang catastrophe and got another great ovation from the crowd. Then Lee caught both private party members flipping out of the ring and powerbombed Mark Quinn twice, once into Isaiah Cassidy, but both of those powerbombs were 
pretty sloppy, if I'm just being honest. I only had two problems with this debut. Both problems were relatively minor, I would say. The first was an absolutely idiotic comparison by Jim Ross, who said Lee is like a younger Mark Henry. First of all, Lee ain't that young. I mean, he's younger than Henry, sure, but you know, he's not, it's not like he's 25 or something like that. You know, he's in his late 30s. Um, but they're literally nothing alike as wrestlers or personalities. What are they? They're both big black men. That's it. That's the comparison. So Jim Ross literally said one guy's like another guy because they have similar physical characteristics to each other, but nothing about their style, nothing about their wrestling ability um, is, is the same. They both have the opportunity to be stars, uh, or I should say Lee has the opportunity to be a star like Mark Henry was. And some would say he's already as big of a star as Mark Henry was, or at least close to it. Mark obviously had crossover appeal because of all his uh, body, I was gonna say bodybuilding, but weightlifting uh, achievements. But that's it. That's the only comparison is the way they look. So that was extremely lazy from Jim Ross. I didn't like that. My other problem was this actually went on a little bit too long. Like I know they wanted fans to feel like they were getting their just due by having Lee on TV and not just showing up, squashing someone and leaving, but he should have squashed Isaiah Cassidy. Cassidy had no reason getting much, if any, offense in that match. By the way, Lee is 37. I was able to look it up. So late 30s, not a spring chicken by any means. Other than that, man, I could not be any happier for Keith Lee. You guys all know he's one of my absolute favorite wrestlers right now. And I thought what happened to him on the WWE main roster was a total travesty and maybe the paradigm of this company having no idea what to do with top talent who maybe does not 1000% fit within their box. WWE literally took this guy, got him over with Brock Lesnar in the Royal Rumble, got him over with Roman Reigns in Survivor Series. They bring him up to the main roster finally after he gets hot shot at the NXT title, then he's forced to drop the title because they want to call him up. They change his look, they change his music, they eventually fix the music, fine. They, they changed everything about the guy. They put him in the ring. He gets a big win over Randy Orton. You're like, oh my God, they're going to push Keith Lee to the moon. This is incredible. I don't care how he looks because they're going to push him. And if they push him, it doesn't matter that he's wearing a flimsy pair of shorts as opposed to a tight pair of shorts or that he's wearing a compression shirt as opposed to just, you know, being topless. Um, but then they get, they start having him lose matches and they just don't treat him well. We all know what happened with COVID. I don't need to go over that entire story. But then he comes back, and this is a guy who should be getting a king's welcome. Should be getting vignettes and and videos of him and Brock and him and Roman. Should be cutting promos and being treated like there's a WWE main eventer coming back after a year off. A guy who survived a pandemic, a, a major sickness that a lot of people succumb to. And it almost cost him his life in reality. All of these things could be told if he would have allowed that. And even if not, you can still say, hey, the guy just went through a fight over the last year. Now he's back. You bring him in as a main eventer and boom, he's right at the top of your company. Instead, they make him Bearcat and they have him growl. It was just unbelievable. And, and then they were surprised that the crowd didn't react to this guy that they love barely showing up. And when he did show up, 
not doing anything that impressive because he just squashed someone and then left the ring and growled. Again, the paradigm of WWE taking someone who had all the potential in the world for them, specifically for that company to be a star in WWE and just, we thought they knew what to do with him. The first couple times we saw him, it made a lot of sense. They were treating him like a big dog. And then they just lost it. They took him the way of Dewdrop. Not that way exactly, but pretty close to it. And now what happened? Just like with many others who Triple H, Paul Levesque, built up in NXT, made into stars, made into, I don't want to say household names, but more common names for wrestling fans who otherwise wouldn't have known them when they were simply wrestling on Independence or in Ring of Honor or something like that. Triple H made this guy ready for prime time. WWE released him and gave him to AEW on a silver freaking platter. He walks into AEW and guess what, folks? He's a massive star. Keith Lee is probably the third person ever that I've been truly happy to see join AEW after leaving WWE. The other two were Brody Lee because he just simply never got the push, the main event push in WWE that he should have, and Miro. Similarly, extremely talented, just never used well or never used consistently well enough. You can make an argument, Miro's still not being used that well in AEW right now. I'm assuming he's injured, but he's been out forever. Uh, Others like Daniel Bryan, Bryan Danielson, Adam Cole, Aleister Black, Malachi Black, and Andrade. I wished all of them stayed. And I still believe if they would have stayed, it eventually would have worked out. But again, for all of them, Danielson and Cole, they chose to leave. Black and Andrade were both fired. Andrade himself asked for his release. But those are all guys where I still believe it would have worked for them in WWE. Keith Lee, I could have sworn up and down when we saw him coming out of that Royal Rumble This guy will be a WWE champion one day. I will bet thousands of dollars on it. And yet, here we are. Keith is going to have a great last however many years of his career in AEW. I mean, he is 37. At some point, you know, I have to believe he's not going to do this forever. Being a guy his size who's been doing it this long and the way he wrestles, you know, maybe he has five, seven years left. But whatever he has left, he's going to give it his all. I'm excited for him in AEW. This is a guy who should be a damn world champion. I know they're not going to do it immediately because they have plans and storylines, but like inside of two years, Keith Lee should be a champion in AEW. This was just so thrilling. It was the happiest I've been watching Dynamite in a really long time. The smile on my face, the legitimate smile, seeing Keith Lee get that reception in AEW um, and, and seeing the way he was presented also. I just couldn't be happier for the guy. And I'm really happy for AEW because this is one of their best free agent signings, of course, other than, you know, the Brian Danielson and CM Punk and Adam Cole, which all three were obvious. Keith Lee is so needed there. He is something they legitimately do not have in more ways than one. And it's great to see him land somewhere softly. Hope he's getting a lot of money and I hope he succeeds massively in AEW. Now, right before this segment, Rapongi Vice got attacked by the super elite in the loading dock. And suddenly, Jay White, former IWGP champion, shows up and squats over Tramperetta, but instead of saving him, 
he throws Trent into the truck to end the segment. And I could not have thought of a more muted and less exciting way for Jay freaking White to debut in AEW. This was actually terrible given the level of his star power. Now, I know he's not Kazuchika Okada, but imagine if like Okada debuted in AEW by walking backstage and hitting Kenny Omega upside the head and then walked off and like that was it. And that was Okada. It just, it's mind boggling that they wouldn't put this segment in the ring, have Rapongi Vice do an interview in the ring, have them attack, Rapongi Vice gets over on the elite or is starting to, Jay White runs in, levels the field, stands in the ring with his arms wide and gets innovation from the crowd. I just couldn't believe how bad this was. Um, the Young Bucks and Adam Cole later did a backstage segment. The Bucks asked Cole why White was there, given he's an enemy of Kenny Omega. Cole said just to trust him. It's clear they're using White plus the Undisputed Era guys to form a rift in the elite. I'm sure when Kenny comes back, it's going to be Kenny and the Young Bucks against Cole and his crew. Uh, if White is still there, I, I doubt he's still there for that, but maybe he is. I don't know. But for White to just not even be in front of a crowd when he made his debut, and yes, it seems like he's going to be on Rampage and, and appear in front of the crowd, but that's not what you promised. You promised it on Dynamite. So as much as I loved Keith Lee and loved what they did with him, I absolutely hated what they did with Jay White. I thought it was absolutely terrible, really bad decision by Tony Khan. On Rampage, speaking of Adam Cole, we had Adam Cole against Evil Uno. Cole hit a last shot in the air, then two basement super kicks and the last shot for the win in like three minutes. I don't love short matches, as you know. This one was purposeful for storyline. Cole went down his list of wins so far in AEW, saying he's undefeated and one of the best wrestlers on the planet, and he deserves more respect. Then he said, it's certain he'll be AEW world champion soon enough, but wasn't his best promo. And it's not really like anyone is disrespecting him in reality. Every time he's on screen, commentary says he's one of the best wrestlers in the world. So where's the disrespect coming from? It seems to clearly be setting up a forthcoming title match with Hangman Adam Page, maybe at Revolution. That was my thought Friday while I was watching um, Rampage. Uh, But if not MJF, which is where I thought they might be heading, Cole would obviously make a lot of sense to potentially be the guy to beat Page. So that's something for us to keep our eye on. So let's move from that to the main event of Dynamite. We had the AEW World Championship match, Hangman Adam Page against Lance Archer in a Texas death match that could only end via knockout or submission. They brawled from backstage and Page tossed Archer through the fakest glass I've ever seen in my life. Archer bladed 30 seconds into the match. Hangman incredibly hit the buckshot lariat, but Archer fell outside and countered a tope suicida with a trash can lid shot to the head. Dan Lambert then came out and unscrewed the top rope to negate Page's finisher as they brawled into the crowd in the middle of a pandemic. You guys know I hate that. Hangman, of course, bladed so hard it was dripping from his face onto the mat. Jake Roberts hit Page with a short arm lariat. He went for the DDT when Archer stopped him. So Page DDT'd Archer and beat him with a kendo stick. Archer chokeslammed Hangman into a garbage can, then jabbed Hangman's bladed cut on his head with a fork and licked the fork. He grabbed chairs plus the one that had barbed wire on it. Archer hit Page with blackout onto steel steps that were turned on their side. Page's head hit it, it ricocheted off the steel steps into the ring post, and then he fell onto the floor. And it was gushing so much blood that it was disgusting. The referee comes over to check Page for a concussion. He puts a light in his eyes for, I swear to you, two seconds, 
and then just goes, okay, you're good to go. Like real good way to check your performer there. Uh, Hangman used some barbed wire and then the referee was bent over in the middle of the ring. So without having the top rope, he used the referee as a pendulum to hit the buckshot lariat on Archer, driving him out of the ring through two tables that were set up at ringside in what was honestly one of the most inventive finishes I've ever seen to a wrestling match. Like you've heard me over the last couple of minutes here criticizing the match for legitimate reasons. That finish was so good. It like tamped down my my angst or anger at a lot of the other things that happened. That was a good one, yeah. There was too much blood in this for me with Hangman, but look, this match banged exactly as I expected it would. As I've said for the last few weeks, Archer should not have gotten a title match in kayfabe, and the storyline to get here was terrible, especially with Lambert being involved in it really for no reason at all. But I thought the match would deliver, and the match did deliver. Some of you may actually be surprised by my grade. I'm going to go with 4.25 stars and an A, despite all of my objections. It was really fun. It was fantastic. Deserving of the main event. Again, didn't need the blading, especially from Paige in particular. Um, Didn't need the blading. And I would have preferred Archer kind of being smart enough to take the top rope down himself. Or maybe Jake Roberts does it. You just don't need Dan Lambert involved in the entire thing. But that freaking finish was so cool. It probably brought it on its own, that finish, from a 3.75 to a 4.25. That's how much I loved it. I thought it was awesome. After the match, uh, Cole came out. He grabbed the title, put it on Paige's shoulder, tapped it twice, and then walked backstage. That made the Revolution match that I thought was obvious almost definite. So it does seem like the second match set for Revolution semi-officially, even though it's still not official, is going to be Paige versus Cole for the AEW World Championship. As of today, Paige has been champion 90 days. You take it out, you know, three more weeks, you're talking about 110 days or so, and you get into the territory where you say, you know what, it wouldn't be the worst thing if they changed the title at that show. There's a lot of arguments to be made for doing it. Paige is way better, at least so far it's been proven, He's been way better chasing than actually being champion. His championship run, he's had really good matches, especially the two with Brian Danielson that are notable. So the wrestling's been good, that's fine. But the storytelling has been awful. There's been nothing to sink your teeth into, nothing to make you really want to root for him as champion the way you did when you rooted for him as challenger. So if AEW switches the title at Revolution, which would be the second time they do it at that show, in the last, uh, I guess, three editions of it since 2020, because John Moxley won the title over Chris Jericho there back in 2020, um, I'd be down for it. It's not that I hate Paige. I just think Cole as champion, it would be a real, not not so much a hot shot, but a real quick elevation into him being world champion. But I think he'd carry the title better than Paige. It would also be hysterical to see him actually carry the title because the thing, he'd be swimming in that thing. I mean, it would be all, it would be half of his, upper body of that championship. The belt is huge. All right, let's keep going. On Dynamite, uh, this opened Dynamite. We had MJF and Pinnacle. They got a grand entrance with cardboard cutouts, special ring announcements, confetti, and models, one of whom MJF made out with. MJF said he's the best in the world. He praised Sean Spears, not Wardlow, for helping him. Then he said he was focused on winning the AEW title. That brought out CM Punk, Darby Allin, and Sting, all with bats. 
Punk demanded a rematch with Wardlow, not MJF, because he's the reason for Pinnacle's success. And it really got convoluted when he said that from there on. Punk said Wardlow can either catch a beating or leave Pinnacle. MJF said Wardlow's not only under contract, he's their best friend. Dax Harwood issued a six-man rematch challenge. Punk said, okay, let's do it. MJF said no. Then MJF said, if Punk beats FTR with any partner besides Darby and Sting, he could get a rematch with MJF anytime, anywhere. I told you it was convoluted. If Punk had left out the part about wanting a rematch with Wardlow, this would have probably gone smoother. In the end, the point was made, and it was a hot opening segment with some of the biggest names in AEW starting a big show. So eventually we got the match, FTR against Punk, and the special partner was John Moxley. Mox got the hot tag, hit a couple German suplexes and a tope suicida. Punk got knocked outside as FTR nearly got the win with an elevated jumping double foot stomp. Then Punk got a hot tag and combined with Mox for a doomsday device for a near fall. Mox ate a tornado DDT outside and Punk ate a ring bell shot from Cash Wheeler behind the referee's back. But that plus a brain buster from Dax only got a 2.8. That's ridiculous to kick out of that in kayfabe. Punk uh, ate the big rig with Mox breaking the fall. Tagging completely stopped in the match. The faces tried a double finisher to, to end the match. FTR escaped. Punk made cash tap in the Anaconda Vice, but the referee totally missed it. Tully Blanchard then came in and starts hitting Punk with his jacket. So Punk nearly dropped him, but eventually gave him a GTS. And then finally, the faces hit their finishers with Punk pinning Wheeler after the GTS for the win. So this match had four wrestlers I really liked and some fun spots, but it was sloppy. In many parts, it went on way too long. Punk kicked out of way too much stuff and the finish was completely convoluted. Also, they made this mistake on NXT too. The Doomsday Device should always end a match. I don't care who does it. If you're doing the Doomsday Device, that should be it. I bet you a certain someone gives this in the high four-star range because that's what they do. But I honestly did not think it was that notable at all. So if my Archer... Uh, hangman grade surprised you. This one may as well. I went 3.25 stars and a B. I bet you guys thought I probably would have switched those. On Dynamite, Andrade El Idolo again said that Darby works for Sting. Sting was confused. Darby laughed, saying he was focused on the TNT title. Andrade said he's going to be the next TNT champion. No part of this storyline with Andrade makes sense. My assumption is both of these guys are going to be in that face of the revolution match. And if so, you have, you know, Keith Lee, Darby Allen and Andrade Alidolo starting off that match. Way to go. Like, that's three big names right off the top. Very exciting. We also had Wardlow versus The Blade. It took a while, really, for no reason at all. Wardlow eventually hit four power bombs, stood on Blade's chest for the win, and then Spears did the chair shot. There was no advancement of this coming out of this match. Uh, on Rampage, we had a TNT championship match. I'm combining this with the TNT stuff I just talked about. And then some inner circle stuff that we're going to talk about in a moment. But we had a TNT championship match, Sammy Guevara against Isaiah Cassidy. Sammy is still wearing both TNT belts. I have no idea why they're calling it him an undisputed champion. Cody was interim champion for like two weeks. What are we doing here? Carrying two belts, if they're different belts, uh, like the US and Intercontinental Championship or WWE Championship and World Heavyweight Championship makes sense. When they're exactly the same belt, it is completely idiotic. Please stop doing this. Cassidy didn't even get an entrance for the match. Andrade came down as Matt Hardy and Mark Quinn were already at ringside. Guevara hit Quinn with a great springboard moonsault, then nailed Cassidy with a springboard cutter for a near fall, and then he won the match with a GTH, as expected. 
The heel surrounded him, but Darby Allen made the save and then stared at the title. The match actually undelivered, underdelivered, I should say, to my expectations. There were some nice spots. It was among my least favorite matches, though, that Sammy's put on recently. And you guys know I'm a huge fan of his, so that was disappointing. Darby Sammy, if that happens, would be an absolute banger. But again, I think all of this is to build contenders for that face of the revolution match. So one of the other reasons I really like Dynamite was the inner circle team meeting that they did in hour one. Chris Jericho, Sammy, and Jake Hager came out, and then Santana and Ortiz entered with, I think, new music for them. Santana said it's obvious Jericho's success has been the priority of inner circle, not theirs, and they will no longer play second fiddle to him. Santana said if it wasn't for Ortiz, he'd have dropped Jericho's ass a long time ago. Jericho said Santana's passion reminded him of Eddie Guerrero. I thought that was a forced and pretty untrue comparison and that Eddie Kingston got in their heads, but that Jericho is the influencer in AEW and has changed their career. So Jericho is moving from the horrible GFY gimmick that he tried to you know, make happen and failed uh, to now calling himself the influencer. That's the latest incarnation of Chris Jericho. Jericho pointed out how he got them a tag team title shot, but they lost to the Young Bucks and he can kick them out of inner circle at any time. Jericho then threatened to call Homicide and Hernandez, the other former members of LAX, Santana went after him. Sammy tried to play Peacemaker and Jericho snapped at him. That led Sammy to say that he's dedicated to Inner Circle. He loves them all, but the infighting is messing stuff up and he would quit unless they all figure it out in the ring. Ortiz called Kingston a brother. He said he likes to settle issues with fists, not talking. So he challenged Jericho and Hager to a tag team match against PNP next week on Dynamite. Santana broke the fourth wall looking into the camera uh, like basically trying to tell the viewer that Jericho's a joke. And that's how the segment ended. I thought this was incredible. One of the best faction segments we've gotten in years. Everyone played their role perfectly. Santana was the MVP of the entire thing. Jericho was finally cast in a position where his leadership and the future of Inner Circle was actually under question. In the MJF feud, it never really felt like it would lead to the breakup of the Inner Circle. It didn't make sense. Everyone at least as far as I'm concerned, knew that eventually they'd figure it out and MJF would get the, you know, ass end of the entire thing. Here, I look at it and I'm like, you know what? I don't know whether they're going to break up Inner Circle or not. On one hand, Santana and Ortiz could definitely go off with Kingston. Jericho versus Kingston at Revolution seems like a match that's most likely going to happen. So they could split them up that way. They could fight for Santana and Ortiz in that match. Um... They could break up next week on Dynamite or the match, you know, really hotly contested, great match could bring them closer together. I just don't know what direction it's going. Very exciting, good promos. Jake Hager didn't speak. That's always a plus. He was the only one not to talk. So just this segment was really good late 1990s faction storytelling, whether it was WCW or WWE. This type of segment really hit that nostalgia part in me that a lot of wrestling today does not. I thought they did a fantastic job. Everyone involved in this segment was great. On Rampage, we had Mercedes Martinez against Thunder Rosa. The match between two of AEW's best women's wrestlers was picking up after a double commercial when Martinez hit Rosa over the head with a lead pipe for a disqualification. Second DQ in AEW, I believe, in the last three weeks. Britt Baker then backstage revealed that She discussed taking out Rosa with Martinez, but they didn't decide on doing a DQ. Baker said to finish the job and not let Rosa win again. Then she made a quip about NXT 
and Jamie Hayter got in Martinez's face. This whole thing was a mess. So on Dynamite, Baker and Martinez are now apparently fully aligned as with Martinez as her henchwoman, even though she already has Jamie Hayter. They had a tape promo where Baker said Martinez and Rosa would rematch next week with no DQ rules. So the only time we've seen the AEW Women's Champion over the last four total shows is two backstage slash taped segments with Mercedes Martinez. What a joke this is. It's also, I presume, telegraphing Baker and Thunder Rosa at Revolution, which will be a great match, or at least a good match, but there's also really no storyline to it other than this. It's just really bad booking. Why can't your women's champion be on television in front of the crowd? Why can't your women's champion cut her promos in front of the crowd and have matches and get wins? They just... Like, Baker's supposed to be the next coming for AEW. They spent so much time making her champion, and they don't use her. It's the same backstage thing every week. It is so terrible and so ridiculous. Speaking of, on Dynamite, we had a TBS championship match. Jade Cargill against AQA. Cargill dominated mostly, but AQA hit her awesome shooting star press for a near fall. She went back to the top rope, nearly fell. There was some botch there. Jade then caught a flying crossbody into the worst tour of the islands I've ever seen and followed with Jaded for the obvious win. So AQA, some of you may remember, was an NXT as Zeta Ramir for a short while. She was really impressive, but she got medically disqualified and that's why she was released. So I'm glad to see her get another shot on TV, but at the same time, I'm a little worried that you know WWE medically disqualified her and there she is already on national television again. Hopefully whatever it was got figured out. But my other thing is, The TNT and TBS titles are really weird to me sometimes. So they did this big tournament to crown a TBS champion. And now Julia Hart and AQA and just these random women are getting title matches for no reason whatsoever. It's one thing when a big name or a notable free agent comes in and gets a match. Let's make believe Mercedes Martinez got a shot or Ruby Soho when she was signed, if the title existed, got a shot. Uh, Or with the TNT title, Jay Lethal came in. He's very, that's a notable name. He gets an opportunity. All of that makes sense. AQA is largely an unknown. So for her to get this opportunity was just ridiculous. Jade Cargill is allowed to be in a match with someone without the TNT title being on the line. This should have just been a singles match. I don't get, or it's TBS title, I'm sorry. Uh, This should have just been a singles match. It was bad. And continuing the terrible women's booking on Dynamite, we had Serena Deeb versus Katie Arquette. Deeb on her way to the ring cut a promo saying she was going to start doing the professor's five-minute challenge. She beat her in seconds. Just save this garbage for Rampage or Dark at this point. Like, this was a terrible, unnecessary spot in an otherwise very good Dynamite. But both these women's matches really brought a damn good show down. And it's not because it's the women's matches, because there's a ton of great women in AEW. AEW has really improved their women's division. But they keep putting the wrong people on television. And when they do put them on the right people on television... The booking is usually terrible. So they really got to get this uh, division together. So wrapping up AEW, a couple more things here on Rampage with the FTW title, Ricky Starks against Jay Lethal. Speaking of, uh, this was the main event. Lethal kicked out of a Liger Bomb. He got some momentum, so Powerhouse Hobbs tried to distract. Lethal came up empty on a tope suicida to Hobbs, so Dante Martin ran in out of nowhere for a springboard splash on Hobbs. Lethal got a jackknife cover for a 2.9 but Starks countered a springing handstand set up for the lethal injection into Rochambeau for the win. The counter finish was awesome. Easily the best part of what, for me at least, was an otherwise boring match. 
The FTW title should only be defended against certain people in certain situations. I revere it back from the ECW days, and I feel like AEW is doing a really poor job putting it on the pedestal where it should be. Lethal getting this match basically for no reason is just silly. It really should be a title for badasses, and it should only be contested when someone is so badass that they prove themselves um, worthy of, of contesting for it, and Lethal didn't do that. So yeah, I just didn't really like the idea behind it, but whatever, the match was okay. On Dynamite, there was also a short vignette with Pentagon's mask. I think it was being buried or dug up or something. Something that had to do with Malachi Black. I think maybe they're going to turn Penta into Pentagon Dark, which was a really badass character he had back in Lucha Underground. If that means a singles push for him, that'd be fantastic. But I'm just not sure where he'd fit in storylines right now, other than, of course, against Malachi Black, which I think could be really exciting. And then lastly, on Rampage, Chris Statlander got attacked by Layla Hirsch who used a chair on her back and then her front. QT Marshall said he had a student who no one's seen ready to fight Hook, and Serena Deeb got some really strange vignette about herself. So wrapping up AEW, I want to take a look at a projected revolution card, what we may potentially get, because again, this might be a really stacked show. So AEW World Championship, Hangman Adam Page against Adam Cole, damn good world title match. CM Punk against MJF, awesome. John Moxley, potentially against Daniel Bryan or Brian Danielson, depending on the direction they take that story. That's something we can keep an eye out for. Britt Baker defending the AEW Women's Championship against Thunder Rosa. That seems to make sense. Chris Jericho, Eddie Kingston, potentially Pentagon against Malachi Black. I could see that finding its way on the pay-per-view, maybe. Uh, Jurassic Express defending the AEW Tag Team titles against either the Young Bucks or Santana and Ortiz. That is possible. And then face of the revolution ladder match with Keith Lee, we already know he's in, possibly Darby Allen, possibly Andrade El Idolo. Maybe it's a spot where Miro makes his return. Maybe Wardlow's in there. That could be an absolutely incredible match. So look, credit where it's due. AEW right now is building a hell of a revolution card. And you can make an argument based on projections that the revolution card is stronger than what WWE is currently doing building towards its WrestleMania card. Just because there's nothing obvious about what WWE is going to do. And we're only a couple months away right now outside of the world title matches for WWE. And maybe the Raw Women's Championship seems pretty obvious as well. Everything else just, there's really nothing. There's, there's nothing there. Here, look, look what I just read off. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight potential matches that three weeks out already seem pretty obvious. So, you know, so far so good on the build to revolution. And again, really, really good episode of Dynamite. My favorite in months as far as Rampage. I can just do without it. They have yet to put on a Rampage show recently that has made me care or want to watch it live or want to watch it that night when I get home or whatever the case might be. I generally wait until early in the next week, Monday, Tuesday, or Wednesday to watch Rampage because I know I'm not really going to love it. So that is AEW this week. Let's move over to NXT. I'm going to talk about everything that happened on NXT that has nothing to do with Vengeance Day, and then we will do, at the end, a NXT Vengeance Day semi-ultimate preview, uh, where we talk about all the matches on that card, along with the storylines uh, preceding them from NXT this week. So we had Cora Jade uh, get really excited about teaming with Raquel Gonzalez. Valentina Feroz and Yulisa Leon came up to talk trash to them. Raquel Gonzalez answered back in Spanish. Cora had no idea what they were saying, and neither did I, as a viewer. Look, subtitles are fine. They use them with Imperium all the time. Uh, I don't know why they didn't use Mir. I want to know what they're saying, right? Really weird. 
Uh, Zoe Stark finally convinced Io Shirai to find a new partner because she deserved to be champion after never losing the titles. Io said she knew who to pick, but wouldn't share it with Zoe. Their interactions together, they actually remain fun, but every time I see Io, it just feels like she's slumming it. Like she, she is so far beyond NXT. We talk about all the people who could be on the main roster, like a Tommaso Ciampa or, you know, whoever. She should be on the main roster. It's a no-brainer for her to be on the main roster. I just do not understand why she is still in NXT. So the main event of this show was the Women's Championship, NXT Women's Championship, Mandy Rose against Kaylee Ray. It looked to be a clean one-on-one because Toxic Attraction was taken out backstage. KLR transitioned from a pin into a really a knee sleeper kind of move that was cool, but Rose escaped. Rose then countered the gory bomb into Code Red for a near fall. KLR was ready to go high risk when Toxic Attraction came in, distracted the referee and interfered, giving Mandy an opening to hit her pump knee and to win in eight minutes. EO made the save, cleared the ring, KLR hit Rose with the gory bomb, and that ended the segment. So Shirai is presumably going to team with KLR in the Dusty Rhodes Women's Tag Team Classic. Look, let's just call a spade a spade here. The match wasn't good. The booking wasn't good. The finish wasn't good. They gave us a commercial-free women's match and only had it go eight minutes with a schmoz finish. Mandy is legitimately terrible as a champion, given the amount of talent on this roster. She's not even a top 10 female wrestler on the brand. I didn't expect a title change, and the finish probably would have been okay if they let this go 15 minutes or so, but it was a really bad segment overall. There was only one match on this show that got time. That was the opening tag team match. Everything else was largely disappointing, including this, and the, the real travesty is is Kaylee Ray is great. Like we saw her in those Mako Satamora matches. Those were nominated for match of the year. And then she goes from that to Mandy Rose and they barely put on eight minutes and it's sloppy while they do it. This was just really, really disappointing to me. We had Wendy Chu against Tiffany Stratton. Chu and Amari Miller walked into the PC with a ton of bags from maxing out Stratton's credit card. Yet Chu was still wearing her pajamas. She did a sleeper hold with her nap hands. Stratton got upset that she broke a nail and hit a double back handspring clothesline. And then she won with a horizontal 360 degree twisting Vader bomb in three minutes. So you have Raquel Gonzalez who does the Vader senton bomb and now Stratton doing like a corkscrew Vader bomb. Awesome, incredible, way better than the flatliner that she did in her first win. Stratton has really showed some skill, but this was just too, I don't know, short, I guess, for anyone to benefit. Not enough happened really in the match. She's better than the crap gimmick that she has. And later, Dakota Kai went through Chu's bags and talked trash to her. It kind of made you think, hey, maybe something's up with these two. And we're going to talk about that in a moment because we had Saray against Dakota Kai. Uh, A key segment on the show ran long. So this started during Picture in Picture. Kai dodged the decapitation dropkick, then ate one later. Sarai then hit the Saito suplex to get the win in six minutes. I was really surprised that they had Sarai beat Kai, let alone do so in six minutes. I mean, Dakota freaking Kai, just like Io Shirai, rhyme not intended, should be on the main roster. Maybe she's getting a call up after WrestleMania, so she's doing some jobs now, but she should be on the top of this division, not someone losing to Sarai, even though Sarai is great herself. We know that, we praise her, but it really felt like a situation where Dakota Kai should have won. Uh, this was good, just not long enough. Chu saw Kai backstage and talked trash back to her. And it kind of makes me think that they might team up 
for the Dusty Rhodes Women's Tag Team Classic, Kai and Chu, which I don't know that it makes sense, but I'm kind of interested in it. So we'll see what they end up doing there. Uh, LA Knight fought Sangha. This guy, Sangha, had a mustache that looked straight out of a Wild West cartoon. It actually looked exactly like the mustache Shad Khan, Tony's father, and the Jaguar's owner has. Uh, Knight started dominating, and Grayson Waller pulled off a turnbuckle pad, which distracted the referee. Mike gave Sangha a shot, threw him into the exposed turnbuckle, hit a neckbreaker for the win. Then he brawled with Waller and hit the BFD to end the segment. Waller later said the restraining order wasn't lifted, and Knight is going to go to jail and get arrested next week. The fans loved this whole thing. I thought it was just okay. It was just a match that didn't really need to happen. Very trite and typical booking. Uh, They did another Nikita Lyons vignette. This time, she said, yeah, I can sing, but I can also kick ass. She did some high-intensity sparring and even used nunchucks. She actually looked pretty cool here, as opposed to that travesty of a rapping, singing, musical vignette from last week. Huge improvement by comparison. Hopefully, they scrap whatever that other part is, and they just go with this being her gimmick, because this was way, way, way better than that. Uh, also backstage Jensen was nervous and he wanted to ask out Caden Carter. Instead, he made it seem like they were asking to all hang out together on Valentine's day. Briggs, who was trying to be the wingman got pissed, uh, that Jensen screwed up and they did some typical romantic comedy type of stuff. This was probably the best of these that they've done so far. I just want to see Caden and Casey Cantazaro wrestle, move on from this type of stuff. I I know it's kind of filler and just backstory, but like, Briggs and Jensen, I don't know. They are they seem so far to be marginally talented. I don't know that this gimmick is helping either of them. As a team, they make sense. But does what does this actually, how does this play out in the ring? Because eventually it needs to play out in the ring or for their characters. And I don't really know that it's going to do that. So look, maybe I'm wrong. We'll see. Um, but again, this was enjoyable compared to the pre- previous ones. I hope Casey and Caden win the Women's Dusty Roads Tag Team Classic. I doubt they will, but I hope they do. So that's everything else that happened in NXT. Let's move on to our NXT Vengeance Day preview. Right now, there are, let me do a quick count. One, two, three. There are five matches set for this special show next week. And they're five pretty damn good matches. So it is uh, exciting to get prepared for this. Uh, start. Let's start with Tony D'Angelo against Pete Dunne. Draco Anthony was disappointed with his loss last week. Joe Gacy told him to keep his head up and said he didn't have to do it alone if he didn't want to. Then Harlan stared at Draco. That was it. Pete Dunn also cut a promo on D'Angelo, but Dunn refused to shake Anthony's hand backstage. So we got Dunn versus Anthony. D'Angelo interfered late. Dunn took him out at ringside and won with bitter end in a couple of minutes. The match was nothing special. D'Angelo again tried attacking, but got his fingers snapped. Dunn then threw a ton of foreign objects into the ring and elevated the challenge from a steel cage match to a weaponized steel cage match. So all these weapons are going to be tied to the cage, basically, uh, during Vengeance Day. I like the elevation of this because this is a pretty violent feud, at least in terms of them having already used weapons, a cricket bat, a crowbar. It makes sense to make this weaponized steel cage. As far as the booking goes, look, Pete Dunne did go up to the main roster and have a couple dark matches or main event matches. I guess they got to look at him. Uh, And he's back in NXT and apparently the plan is for him to be in NXT. He's still super young. I'm okay with that. You had D'Angelo win the crowbar match. Pete Dunne is your bigger star. Pete Dunne is your guy with the higher ceiling. He absolutely should be winning this match. So I will pick Pete Dunne to beat Tony D'Angelo here. Uh, The women's tag team championship match is going to be Toxic Attraction against Indy Hartwell and Persia Parada on NXT. Duke Hudson was confident that Dante Chen was afraid of him. Then he wished Indy Hartwell good luck next week and winked into the camera. They're both from Australia. That's the connection, by the way. So we'll clearly have a 
Hudson Dexter Loomis feud coming after he beats Chen. And I thought it was good for them to set up something for the future. Toxic Attraction later tried to get into the challengers' heads about being on different pages, and they suggested Indy may be cheating on Loomis with Hudson. So Prada attacked them, and there was a brawl. None of this was especially notable. I believe that Hartwell and Parada, something that's going to happen in the match where they're not really on the same page or it further divides what is still a new tag team and doesn't need to be divided. I don't exactly know what they're doing with that storyline, but if Mandy Rose is retaining the world, the women's championship, there's no way Toxic Attraction is losing the women's tag team championship with the Dusty Rhodes tag team classic not even happening yet for the women. So I'm going to have Toxic Attraction retain the titles. Let's talk about the Dusty Rhodes tag team classic for the men because we had two semifinal matches on NXT. The first, Grizzled Young Veterans against Brothers Creed. GYV got attacked while cutting their entrance promo. We still can't get a full entrance promo from these guys. It's been months. Uh, GYV slingshotted Brutus Creed under the ring, but he got a lifted vertical suplex on Zach Gibson. Julius Creed got the hot tag with the Creed's clearly the baby faces for the crowd. James Drake escaped the stretch muffler. Then Tope seated Julius into the announce table. GYV hit the Doomsday device, but Julius kicked out. Just like I said with AEW, no one should kick out of the Doomsday device. That was silly. Uh, Julius jumped atop his brother's back to superplex Drake off the top rope in a sick spot. Then he slammed Gibson with Brutus adding a basement clothesline as retribution for the slingshot for the one, two, three. Match quality, this was super fun. Great work both ways with the Creeds getting over against a team that should already be on the main roster in GYV. The crowd was all in on the Creeds. That was great. Booking-wise, especially considering who won the last match, I really think GYV should have won here. I know NXT wants the young guys to get over, but just going this far in the tournament and in this match should have been enough to make them relevant. I can't fault the decision or the booking, though. I'm going to give this 3.5 stars and a B. Very solid. That might be a quarter star too high, but I loved it and I was fully entertained. It was easily the best match on NXT. We also had MSK against Idris Anofe and Malik Blade. Nash Carter did a Bronco Buster. There was intense and athletic stuff in this match. Carter hit a flying stomp on Anofe that was broken up. Then Blade did a sick tope onto Wes Lee. Anofe and Blade combined for some assisted front slam type of move, plus a splash from Anofe for a 2.99. MSK eventually rallied and hit their still unnamed after two years assisted flying blockbuster for the win to advance to the finals of the Dusty Rhodes Tag Team Classic once again. Really fun, but I just wish it got the same amount of time that GYV and the Creed's got. Half of this was during commercial. I'll say three stars and a B minus, only because there just was not enough meat to chew on. So that brings us to the finals of the Dusty Rhodes Tag Team Classic. MSK against the Brothers Creed, Creed Brothers, whatever you want to call them. I prefer the former. And this one's really tough to call. On one hand, the Creed's are hot right now. But NXT has this issue where they're overpushing the newest talent. The whole point of developmental is for the new talent to get tested with the older, more experienced talent, the older, more experienced talent eventually winning until it's time for that talent to move on to the main roster. And that's when you elevate the younger guys. Now, if MSK is potentially headed up to Raw or SmackDown, which by the way, could definitely use them after WrestleMania, then maybe if you're doing that, there's a reason for the Creed brothers to win here. But then you look forward, Imperium is the champions, and you think, well, who? what, what match makes more sense? And MSK, the team that lost the titles 
had the Shaman and Riddle help them to get back to this spot, is the defending Dusty Rhodes Tag Team Classic winners. To me, and, and is now, by the way, back over with the crowd after the silliness that we've talked about ad nauseum on this podcast, they have an opportunity to do a full reset here. The Creeds, win or lose, they're pretty much going to be in the same spot. They're over, the crowd loves them, they're still developing. MSK for me needs the win and should have the win. So what I would do is I would have MSK beat the Brothers Creed, uh, you know, have them pin Brutus because they want to protect Julius, I understand. But they get the win, they move on um, to get the number one contendership, fight Imperium at Stand and Deliver, and possibly on that show ahead of WrestleMania, you get a tag team title change. That is what I would do. That's what I think is the most exciting potential booking. Two more matches left here on the Vengeance Day preview. We have the North American Championship, Carmelo Hayes defending against Cameron Grimes. Hayes and Trick Williams were in the barbershop talking shit about their rise to the top, Grimes' lack of success, a bunch of stuff like that. It was nice. It was a different look for a video package. It reminded me of the general idea of Hit Row being in the studio, just casual, trying to feel real. This one did feel a little bit more forced than that one was. Um, it was almost overly produced. It was too clean, if that makes sense. Like it should have been a little, I don't, I don't want to use the word grimier, but it should have felt more like gorilla style. Like it was reality, like a reality show. Instead, it felt like cameras were on tripods and stuff like that. Um, it felt more like, I'm forgetting the name of the show, but the LeBron Maverick Carter barbershop show on HBO. It felt more like it was that than it was a camera finding these guys naturally talking in a real barbershop in Orlando. And that's what I would have preferred here. Um, Grimes also had a video package that was nothing special. Coming into this match, you know, like it would make sense for Cameron Grimes to win the title. It would. I don't know that they're going to take it off of Carmelo Hayes this quickly, especially on a TV special. If you want to make a title change at this point in NXT, I think you're going to save those title changes for Stand and Deliver, WrestleMania weekend, if you're going to do them at all. So I'm going to go ahead and pick Hayes to retain the title. Grimes being champion makes sense. It would not hurt Hayes if they decided to put it on Grimes. They could definitely run a rematch back, maybe make it a triple threat at Stand and Deliver if they wanted to. But for TV, I'm just expecting a great match, a really exciting match with Hayes retaining. And then lastly, this one, a lot of talk about here. NXT Championship, Braun Breaker defending against Santos Escobar. So they had a championship summit on NXT. Wade Barrett was the host. Legado del Fantasma was in the ring looking sharp as hell, by the way. Braun was hyped up. Santos was cool as a cucumber. And then suddenly, without really any prompting, Dolph Ziggler entered to a great reaction from the crowd and Barrett just dipped and Dolph like became the de facto host. Ziggler broke down uh, in kayfabe, basically. He said he got a bonus from Johnny Ace for just being there. Braun said he would take down Ziggler after Escobar. And Dolph said, looking ahead is stupid. He needs to concentrate on Escobar or else he might lose the title. Ziggler then ran down his entire resume and said the NXT title is the only one he doesn't have. That led Tommaso Ciampa out to get in his face and call him Kid. Escobar got pissed. He said he'd win the NXT title, then handle Ziggler and Ciampa. Ciampa said he's next after Escobar, unless Ziggler has a problem with that. Ziggler talked shit about the crowd and Ciampa being stuck in NXT. So Ciampa attacked him while Legato attacked Braun and put him through a table. This was really an incredible segment, top to bottom. Just like I said, I loved the inner circle bit that they did over on Dynamite. I loved this on NXT. Maybe Ziggler versus Ciampa 
well, they'll have a match between the two of them on TV. The winner fights Braun at Stand and Deliver WrestleMania weekend. It should probably be a triple threat between those three. So everyone gets featured. I just do not know what the booking is going to be here. Just like I don't know what it's going to be within our circle. And that has me intrigued. The only negative was they jumped and did this way too soon. It took shine off the Vengeance Day match. We knew Braun was going to retain anyway over Santos Escobar, but this made it obvious that he was going to retain. And I hate when WWE does that. This should have either happened post-match at the end of Vengeance Day, Ziggler coming out, popping the crowd, you know, people going crazy, and that would promote the next few weeks going into Stand and Deliver. Or you wait until the following NXT TV episode when they're back on USA Network. You tease that Dolph Ziggler is going to be there. What's he going to say? He shows up and all of this goes down. So I don't exactly know what the plan is going to be. I'm excited that Ziggler's down there. I think there's a great opportunity for them to do something fun. But at this point, it just all remains to be seen because I don't know exactly what the plan is. As far as the match goes for Vengeance Day, I have Braun Breaker retaining the title over Santos Escobar. So at Vengeance Day, no title changes and a good mix of heels and faces winning. You know, it's going to be kind of curious to see how they uh, develop that entire show. So that is really it uh, that this week in the world of NXT. You know, we could potentially do an NXT Vengeance Day instant analysis episode immediately after it goes off the air Tuesday night. I don't think it's going to be necessary to do that. So the plan as of right now, like I said, is to save it for Thursday, especially because it's going to be a pretty busy week for the Silver King as it is. A reminder that on Tuesday, we're going to have our WWE Elimination Chamber Ultimate Preview. And then on Saturday, we'll have our WWE Elimination Chamber Instant Analysis with the NXT Vengeance Day and AEW show in between on Thursday. So I like the way that's spread right now. Overall, let me say before I conclude, just talking about NXT, I did forget to wrap it up. It was an okay show. It fell below my expectations based on the card that was booked going in, really. I told you that GYV Creed Brothers match was the only one that popped me. But this segment, plus that match, really helped it be a fun show overall. But it just wasn't as good as it's been in some of the weeks uh, that preceded it. Nevertheless, excited for this upcoming week in the world of WWE, NXT, and AEW. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at GettingOverCast to find out if we do the pre-show ahead of WWE Elimination Chamber on Saturday. If we do, it'll be 90 minutes before that premium live event begins. Do not miss our shows on Tuesday and Thursday next week. Also, we, you know, the reason to follow us on Twitter is because we tweet out every single time there's a brand new episode. And like I said, we will have pre and post show full Saturday after that Elimination Chamber analysis. The only way you can vote in them is to follow us on Twitter at getting overcast. And the best way you can make us feel good, uh, when I say us, I mean myself, the Silver King, my co-host, Vintage Chris Vanini, who will be at back on Tuesday. The way you can make us feel good about the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast, spending our time every week doing this for you guys, is to head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify, leave a five-star rating for Getting Over. Let people know how much you love the show. On Apple, also leave a review. We will read all five-star reviews here on the podcast. That is it for today. I appreciate all of you listening to this extended breakdown of AEW and NXT. And that tells me I only need to leave you with three final words. Bye for now.